Let's just pray. Okay. Always that, right? <coughs> it mm. Oh, Father, we do pray that you'll lead us now as we turn to your word. Lord, thank you for being with us all the time. Thank you, Lord, that you do lead us. And Father, we know that beyond any other means, you lead us through your word. And Father, we just ask you by your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, Lord. Amen. All right, well, we come tonight to the last in the... Um, this series we're doing on Elijah. Boo-hoo. Pardon? Boo-hoo. Boo-hoo. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's been, been that blessed, has it? <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. Um, two, two Kings is where we need tonight. Uh, two Kings. And uh, chapter 2. And... Uh, We read from verse 1. Right, okay. Uh, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elisha said to him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Then Elijah said to him, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went, and stood at some distance from them, and they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. 
And as they went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah <clears throat> that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Right, now, what we're going to do is do it a bit verse by verse, but first of all, we're going to just cover the first six verses, and uh, you've got this thing, um, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, Elijah knows that his time is about to come, and he's going to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, and uh, so he starts the journey, and the journey is eventually across the Jordan, um, but he goes via, first of all, Bethel, and he stops off there, then he goes via Jericho, and... Uh, then he goes across to the Jordan. So you've got like a three-stage journey. And uh, what happens is that uh, <clears throat> each, each time <clears throat> that um, he reach, you know, he starts the journey, there's going to be three stages. Each time he starts the journey, he says to Elisha, stay here, don't come any further, the Lord has only sent me beyond here. So he says, you know, for instance, you know, look, um, I've got to go to Bethel, you stay here. And, uh, and Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you. And so they get there, and then on to the next stage, etc., etc. And, um, and of course, each time that they arrive where they're going, prophets appear and uh, tell Elisha that Elijah is about to be taken away from him. Now then, there's a couple of things, or th you know, three things about that. And the first one is this thing, why is it uh, that as Elijah sets out on this three-stage journey, it's his last journey on earth, and before he commences each stage, he tells Elisha to stay where they were at that moment. The Lord has called me further, but you stay here. And this happens three times in a row. Now, <clears throat> why is it that he's doing that? Now, you'll remember, um, was it last time or the time before? I can't remember now. Uh, but we saw when Elijah originally called Elisha. And uh, having kind of like thrown his mantle on him and said, you know, you're going to sort of take my place, etc., etc. Uh, what happens um, is that, you know, Elisha goes to follow him and Elijah put him off. You know, what, you know, what have I to do with you sort of thing? And we saw that the reason for that was that here was Elisha being called into the service of God. But Elijah did it in such a way that Elisha was not in any manner at all being coerced or, or tricked or just carried along by a whim. Uh, he did it in such a way that Elisha would make an absolute free will choice 
knowing full well what it was he was getting into. Now, you know, sort of like quite a lot of time has passed since Elisha was called by Elijah, uh, you know, sort of three odd years, I think it is. So, obviously, Elisha has been being trained by Elijah. This would have been one of the things that Elijah was doing and preparing him for uh, the future calling that God had for him. But here, at the point where Elijah knows that he's going to leave and Elisha is going to take over, he continues to emphasize the importance of Elijah continuing to follow purely on his own free will choice. So that Elisha has been called into service and he's been, you know, like prepared for it. And Elijah did that, making sure that Elisha had made up his own mind, not just getting carried along by a fad or something like that. And now that Elisha is about to start the work that he has been trained for, Elijah does it again to make absolutely sure that Elisha is pursuing this course because he's 100% for the Lord and not because he's in any way being uh, coerced at all. And of course, coercing people is completely counterproductive. Um, I mean, when, when we became Christians, you know, for me certainly, the night that the Lord revealed himself to me, there was no coercion. I surrendered to him because that was the desire of my heart. Now the point is that for any one of us, as we carry on in our day-to-day -day discipleship, it's got to be for the same reason. We're doing it because it is the desire of our heart and, uh, you know, kind of our choice. And, and to follow the Lord, as I suppose sometimes, uh, you know, perhaps Christians can, the idea of following the Lord out of a, a sense of, of, of somehow not having any choice isn't really what the Lord wants. I mean, there are certainly times, yes, when we follow based on that act of the will, we're doing it in obedience to him. But it's no use kind of, you know, following the Lord out of some, oh, well, it's better for me personally that I do because, I mean, you know, well, I mean, how would I make it without him? That's actually selfish. That that choice has got to be the active uh, declaration that he is our God and we are his people and a surrender to him on the pure basis that he is the king of the universe. And what, you know, we must be his obedient subjects. And it's got to come from our own free will. After all, you can't make someone love you. With the best will in the world, you cannot make someone love you. And you see, that is what the Lord wants. He wants us to love him. Now, of course, we show that love in giving obedience to him. But again, it's not just because we have to, it's because we actually want to. And it was for this reason, and I've often said this, that Jesus, I mean, in his role as an evangelist, like when he was preaching the gospel and wanting people to start to follow him, unlike the approach that many Christians take today, Jesus did not take the approach of getting them in the kingdom at any cost. In actual fact, Jesus would rather take the approach of putting people off the idea of following him. Um, let's, let's go uh, to Matthew chapter 8 and just see some, some verses in Matthew. 
And we're going to see that one of the reasons that it's so important that following the Lord is a free will choice is precisely because there are times when it is so very hard to follow the Lord. And uh, Matthew chapter 8, and uh, find verse 19. Matthew chapter 8, verse 19. And of course the reason that often it is so hard is because the Lord is calling us to deny ourselves and enable him to deal with our sin. Well, our problem is we love our sin, don't we? So that's why it's hard, because we're sinners whom he is trying to make holy. I mean, not that we ever personally will be holy, but the Lord is actually, you know, sort of like Jesus wants to grow more and more in us. But of course that means dealing with our sin. It's not our holiness, but we can share the Lord's himself. Now then, Matthew 8, and uh, verse 19 and 20. Um, and a scribe came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now then, I mean, you know, for most Christians today, say they're out on an evangelistic camp, or say they're just walking down the street, and someone knows that they're a Christian, you know, and they come up and say, I want to become a Christian. You know, I mean, what would our response be? Oh, fantastic, you know, straight up into the bath to baptise them. What was Jesus' reaction to this? Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what you've got there is an example of two people who are saying, I'm going to become a Christian. Now, can you see the first one? He says, Teacher, I'm in. I'm going, to be a, I'm going to follow you. And what Jesus says to him, he says, Hold on. Just hold on. Cotton picking minute. All right? The result of you following me might well be that one day you'll end up in the same situation that I'm in. And the situation that I'm in is that I haven't anywhere to lay my head. Homeless. So Jesus says, Just Hold on, fella, and think about what you're doing. Jesus wasn't telling him, nope, sorry, not going to let you in, you can't be a Christian. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, hold it. Think about what it's going to mean for you. There's going to be a price to pay if you follow me. Uh, so there we have an example of someone who was far too quick to become a Christian. Far too keen, you know. Uh, mouthy. Oh, yes, Lord, you know, do you remember, you know, Peter, oh, Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. And when he got his chance, he blew it, you know. We, we, we mustn't ever be too quick. But then someone else came up to him, and, uh, and he says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but I've got a few things to do first. I've got to go and bury my father, which is an idiom. This isn't literally a funeral that he's got to do. It's a kind of idiom. I've got important family matters to settle. I've got things to do first, then, then I'm available for you. And, uh, and Jesus said, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, he wasn't keen enough. Can you see? There's a balance. We've got a Mr. Too Quick and a Mr. Too Slow. The first one was too quick to want to be a disciple. The second one was too slow to want to be a disciple. Can you see what I mean? And, uh, but you certainly see in the ministry of Jesus that he wanted people to stop and to realise what it would mean if they were about to surrender themselves to him. Jesus didn't want people to think that being a Christian is getting born again, getting a ticket to heaven, and then it's all roses while God looks after you for the rest of your life. Now, it is getting born again, 
and it is getting a ticket to heaven in that you've got your entry, you know, sort of, you know, the blood of Jesus. We're saved. But if we think that the Christian life is ever after there a bed of roses, we're wrong. And Jesus didn't want people to become Christians thinking that it was going to be good for their own self-interest and later on, you know, sort of think, oh, you know, I feel let down, I thought God was going to bless me, I, I thought God was going to give me everything I wanted. You see, Jesus wanted them to know that uh, it was going to be really tough. So that afterwards they couldn't turn around and say, oh, well, I think this Christianity is a con because I was told all about love, joy, peace, blessing, all this kind of stuff and I'm going through hell. Is he? Well, I mean, Jesus went through hell in the garden. He sweat great drops of blood. Jesus suffered in the work that he did. He was rejected by men. He was called everything under the sun. And he said, if you follow me, if they did that to the master, what worse things are they going to do to you, his servants? Uh, still in Matthew, go over to chapter 19 and uh, find verse 16. Um... Matthew 19, verse 16. This is an interesting little debate here between Jesus and a potential convert. And uh, I've often said it, a lot of Christians that sell their souls to the devil to get converts. Can you see, we're that keen, you know, just to see people as we, well, as I don't, with people making, you know, sort of like the jargon is, people making decisions for Christ. Well, it's wonderful when, you know, when anyone gets saved, but we've got to be careful that uh, the offer of free salvation isn't degenerating into it becoming cheap. Because it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Now then, listen to this. Uh, Behold, one came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is a bloke who thought he was potentially good enough to be a Christian, all right. Um, you know, thought that he could earn his own salvation, like a good Jew. Jew. And he said to him, uh, which, I, which commandments do I keep? And Jesus said, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have observed, what do I lack? Now then, here's a young man who needs to realise that uh, if he's going to get to heaven, it's not going to be on the basis of his good works. He needs to be told that he's a wretched sinner. Uh, he needs to be told that it's only through Jesus that he could be saved. That's what he needed to be told, isn't it? Because after all, telling that, and if he accepts that, well, then of course he's going to become a Christian. And Ray, we've got another one for the kingdom. How, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, and that word perfect there means like complete, all right, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great goods. Now, what Jesus says to him, isn't, you know, sort of like, well, you just need to repent of your sins, you just need to realise that, you know, you can't get into heaven on the basis of your own righteousness, you know, you've got to bleep, you know, blah, blah, blah. Jesus went one step further. He says, now, for you as an individual, for that particular person, Jesus says, you're very rich and you're in bondage to your riches. You're totally materialistic. You've got to sell everything that you've got and give it away to the poor. Then become a Christian. And, of course, the bloke went away. 
he didn't get saved. Can you see, the point is, Jesus knew the price that that man would have had to pay to be a disciple. And so Jesus told him what the price for him individually was going to be. It was a word of knowledge here. It's not saying that you can't become a Christian unless everyone gives away everything they've got. But this particular man, Jesus knew, was in bondage to worldly goods. And so Jesus said, right, for you, the cost is going to be, you've got to sell everything that you've got. Can you see, Jesus was not interested in converts. Jesus was interested in disciples. And uh, so the point is, the approach that Jesus took was, count the cost now, and then later on, you won't feel coerced. I mean, with Jesus, with following Jesus, there's nothing under the table. It's, it's not a contract that's full of small print. The print is all up front, and it's in the Bible. And uh, so, therefore, with Christianity and following Jesus, it's rather what you see is what you get. And what do you see? You see Jesus giving up everything, having nothing, in order to obey his Father in heaven and save us. Now, Jesus said that may well be the path that anyone who follows me has to take. So be under no illusions, I haven't promised to make everyone stinking rich or to give everyone an easy time. You might even die as a result of following me. But can you see, Jesus wanted it all up front so that no one felt shortchanged afterwards. He wanted people to know from the start that it was going to cost them everything they had. And he made this so clear to people that he actually discouraged them from following him. And it's the exact opposite to kind of the approach today in evangelism of raking the unbelievers in at any cost. Can you see what I mean? You know, tone the gospel down. Um, have rallies where you can have a choir and an organ, and you have a bit of very fervent preaching, and then, you know, low lights, the choir singing, you know, emotional music in the background, and then the evangelist starts to manipulate people into putting their hands up, or whatever. Can you see? That was not the approach that Jesus took at all. And, uh, and it's why in our talking with people, um, it seems to me what we're saying is two things. If you want to follow Jesus and have your sin dealt with and then get your life dealt with, if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. Don't think it's an easy ride. It's not going to be an easy ride. It's going to be tough. But my goodness, Jesus is worth it. That, to me, is evangelism. Can you see? It's the command to people to repent of their sins. But it's also making sure that they're aware that it's not just a question of putting their hands up and then saying, oh, I repent of my sins, and then going away and living just as they did before. It's a question of bringing that authority of the Lord to bear on their lives, making them realise it's going to cost them everything, but being able to say to them, it's cost me everything, but I think it's the best thing I ever did. Jesus is worth it. That's evangelism, not the easy sell of so much evangelism today. And even, you know, Elijah here, after having thoroughly trained up Elisha, so that Elisha was ready to start the prophetic ministry that Elijah was going to stop and go to heaven, Elisha was going to take that on and carrying it through, even up to that point, Elijah is still underscoring that in Elisha's heart, saying, Elisha, make sure that you're doing this of your own free will for you to carry on from here is going to cost you everything. So, you know, sort of like we need to understand that. The church is commanded to make disciples of all nations, not converts, but disciples.
Okay, right, now the, the second thing is that in Elijah, in Elijah taking that response, um, Elisha's response to, sorry, Elijah taking that approach brought a response from Elisha which was simply this, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. Now can you see the correct approach when someone does come through, when someone is saying, right, I know, I understand, this is going to be tough, but nevertheless, aware, I'm aware of that, but count me in, there you have the response of love. And that is the work that the Holy Spirit does in people. I mean, it's like, for instance, think some churches say in the shepherding movement, where you've got really ultra-authoritarian setups. You know, you've kind of got, like, the big man at the top of the church, and under him are the shepherds, and every believer in the church is under a shepherd, all right? They have their own personal shepherd. Now, I mean, the leader of the church gets his guidance from apostles who are outside of the church. Uh, he then gives guidance to the shepherds, and all the sheep, you know, the mere plebs on the bottom rung, uh, they get all their guidance from their shepherds, and they can't make a move without a shepherd. I mean, you know, they can't go on holiday without clearing it with their personal shepherd. And it's a big coercion thing, you know, and it's like, you know, unless your submission is to that extent, way beyond what the Bible teaches, but unless their submission to their elders is that absolute, then they're in trouble. Now, of course, what does that get you? It gets you a big fear set up. And those people end up submitting to their leaders, not because it's what the Bible says and they're doing it because they love the Lord and their leaders, they're doing it because they're going to be in big trouble if they don't. And I'm not talking here about, you know, I mean, obviously if someone's, you know, kind of being immoral all over the place, then even in a biblical church, they're going to have reasons maybe to fear the elder knocking on the door. But what I'm talking about in the shepherding churches, you don't make a move without your elder's consent. It's absolutely outrageous. And so the point is that those churches are very often very orderly, you know, sort of like you go into them and there's not a person out of place. Everyone is as good as gold. But of course, they're like that because they daren't not be as good as gold because the elders are going to descend on them like a ton of bricks from heaven. And of course, the point is that the kind of, if you coerce people or kind of, you know, just bring them along with all the emotional manipulation, etc., etc., the response you get is not the response of love. And yet what the Lord is after is to people to really submit to him because they've looked at it, they've said, right, this is going to be hard, but Lord, I love you. It's the response of love. And uh, I mean, the Bible says that we actually love God. The reason that you and I love the Lord is because he first loved us. We are simply responding to the love that he showered on us. But authoritarianism creates obedience by fear. And it's completely wrong. It is no good at all. People have got to be following the Lord, whether it's you and I here today, or whether it's Elisha following Elijah on this last trip to where Elijah was going to be taken back to heaven. Every step of the way has got to be because it's a free will choice that we are making, because we want to follow the Lord. And it's where we have to be kind of, you know, sort of like so, so careful that in our discipleship we really are doing it out of our own hearts and not merely even because we're being carried along by each other. 
that could be a possible thing. That's not the reason. It's got to be because each one of us is longing in our hearts for everything um, that, um, you know, that God has got for us. And uh, I've said before that outside of the Bible there are two main areas of guidance in my own life. One is Star Trek and one is Blake Seven. And uh, there was an occasion, in, in Blake Seven, you, you know, I mean, part of the drama was the tension between two of the crew. You had Blake, Rog Blake, and he was the bloke who was in charge, he was the captain of the ship. And, uh, and you had Avon and Villa. Now, Avon was a very suave, very capable, extremely brave, but also intolerably arrogant bloke, all right? Whereas Villa, he was a sneak thief. And he had a heart of gold, but he was a coward, and his background, he'd escaped from an interplanetary prison somewhere, and he was a thief and a lowlife, but really had a heart of gold. But he was a coward and a bit of a weak-willed character. And Avon and Villa, throughout Blake 7, they were always squabbling. You know, it was perpetually Villa trying to get one over on Avon, and of course Avon always beat him hands down. And, um, and there was one occasion when Avon had had this argument with Blake, and Blake had given an order that they were going to do something one particular way, and Avon disagreed with him. And, uh, you know, and he kind of like persuaded Blake to go his way, but Blake was the captain. He said, no, we're doing it this way. So Avon lost that argument. And uh, so Villa decides, right, here's my chance to get at Avon, you see. And he has a go at Avon saying, oh, you gave in, you know, to Blake, you're weak. You know, you say I'm weak, so are you. And, uh, and Avon's reply to Villa was very, very good. He said, Avon, the trouble is you're being led. I've decided to follow. Now, can you see the difference there? We must make sure that we are not simply in our Christian lives being led by what's going on around us. You know, be it even other people following the Lord. We've got to make sure that we're not like Villa, just being led along, you know, with a kind of a ring through his nose. We've got to make sure that we're like Avon, not in his arrogance, but in that thing that he looked at the situation and he thought, right, I am deciding to follow. Can you see? That's the point. Even in our submission to God's word, each other, etc., etc., it mustn't be a passive thing. It must be something that we have decided each from our own hearts to do. So the point is that what Jesus wants in people is he wants disciples. He wants people who of their own free will want him to have his way in their lives. And, uh, and of course the point is that certainly for anyone here, if they don't actually wholeheartedly want God's will in their life, then the answer is you're in the wrong church because that is what this church is for. I mean, there are many, many other groups on the Christian scene where you can hover on the sidelines and kind of go through the Christian motions without getting your life dealt with. But of course, what a true church is all about, insofar as the people within the church, on the one hand, we're here to preach the gospel to people who aren't in the church yet, so they get saved, but on the other hand, we're here to become God's obedient children. He wants to sort us out. Now, the third thing on this journey, this threefold journey, is that each time Elijah says, you stay here, and Elisha says, no, I'm, I'm coming further, I'm 100% for the Lord. Uh, at each step of the way, prophets step in and confirm to Elisha that he's on the right track. Elijah has told him, right, I'm going to go up to heaven, right, and uh, here's the journey, we'll go to Bethel first, then... Jericho, then Jordan, blah, blah, blah. And each step of the way, 
prophets appear and they confirm quite independently to Elisha that Elijah wasn't just leading him up the garden path. Can you see that? The Lord did not expect Elisha merely to be accepting Elijah's word. All right? God did not expect Elisha to just assume that Elijah was right all the time. All right? But gave him quite objective guidance outside of Elijah. So Elijah is directing him, and that's right and proper, but God didn't expect Elisha to just passively whatever Elijah says I'm going to do. God confirms to Elisha quite independently that Elijah was leading him in the true way. And what we learn from that, you know, it's back to guidance. We talked a bit about this in our earlier studies in the Elijah series. But it's a principle here that is vitally important. And it's this, don't accept anything just because someone says it. Even with Elijah. You see what I mean? I mean, Elijah, we might be tempted to think that a recognized prophet, a ministry proven to Israel, no doubt about it, you could not doubt that God was with Elijah, alright, and yet, nevertheless, God did not expect Elisha merely to just accept what Elijah said, because Elijah said it. God confirmed that Elijah was right from completely outside sources. Now, can you see the importance of that? Now, if that is true of Elijah, that Elisha wasn't even to just take Elijah's word about things, how much truer is it for us today with each other, and especially leaders in the church? Now, in the same way that God led Elisha through Elijah, God will lead his people today through leaders. But the point is, God also wants to confirm that the lead, whether or not the leaders are leading correctly, he wants to confirm that to you in such a way that you know for yourself. Never submit to Christian leaders blindly. It doesn't matter how well proven they are, how clear it is that God is with them, the point is that no man is the oracle of God, and everything has got to be tested by its conformity to the word of God. So never simply passively follow someone. I mean, the point is, even if, say, a Christian leader in something is right, and you follow his lead, if you're following that lead merely passively, oh well, my leader says so, there's no value in it. That is to lead in a positive, you know, in a passive way, back to Avon and Villa, you're being led, I've decided to follow. We must follow leaders because we have ourselves tested them and are satisfied of their conformity to scripture. And anything they say, anything they teach, this applies here, anything I say, anything I teach, must never simply be taken, oh, well, Beresford said it, it must be right, he's been right before, so therefore he must be right now. No, no, no. The fact that I've been right before doesn't mean I'm right now, because, of course, the point is I've been wrong before. So I might be wrong now. Can you see the importance of always testing absolutely everything by conformity to the Word of God? We must never submit to authority of any kind blindly. Uh, if you just, just go to 1 John, chapter 2, and uh, just, just some verses that, that, that sometimes throw people a bit. 1 John, chapter 2, 
and uh, going to read from verse 26. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26. I write this to you about those who would deceive you, but the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, that may sound offhand, you know, that sort of like John is saying, you know, don't bother to listen to anyone, don't bother to lead, read your Bible, because of course, you know, the Holy Spirit, the anointing is in you, he leads you, he teaches you. It could be a recipe for anarchy. Well, it's not that at all. What he's simply saying is that that is the balance to submission to authority. But what he's saying is uh, that, okay, even though we may be taught by others, we must at least make sure that we have that witness inside of us and that we can check up ourselves to find out whether it is right or not. And that's what John is saying there, that ultimately it's not, I mean, for instance, tonight, technically, it shouldn't actually be me who is teaching you. The way it ought to work is that in your life you take away what you've heard and then you let the Holy Spirit confirm to you what of what I've said was right and what was wrong. Can you see? So technically it's not me who's teaching. In a sense, I'm chucking it all out in the centre of the floor. Then each one of you must let the Holy Spirit lead you in there to take out that which is right for you. Can you see? So it's a counterbalance, alright, to the idea. It's not a question of just, well, whatever the leaders say, or here's my favourite leader, or there's my favourite Christian, and well, they've been right in the past, whatever they say, it must be right. No, each one of us is responsible for responding to what the Holy Spirit is saying inside of us. And the point is, you may think sometimes, oh well, if someone's a Bible teacher, they know the Bible better than me, don't they? Uh, therefore, who am I to question them? They know better. Now the point is, if there's ever an occasion when I say something and you think, oh, maybe it just jars with you, and you think, oh dear, I'm not sure about that, never let the fact that you feel you don't know your Bible too well stop you checking that up. The Holy Spirit in you is the guarantee that if you're really determined to test what's been said, you'll be able to. Can you see? The Holy Spirit will himself teach you. And that's what John is saying there. So never be passive in regards, you know, to, um, you know, teaching. Don't just be like vacuum cleaners, just sucking up whatever is in the room. We've got to be discerning. We've got to test everything. Right, okay, that, that's, that's basically verses um, uh, 1 to 6. And uh, in verse 7, uh, you know, I mean, now they're... Well, in verse 7, 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them and they were both standing by the Jordan. So now they're on their last phase of their journey and they're, they're standing there and obviously Elijah is going to go over to the other side. But of course it's the Jordan and there's not a bridge there. So they can't and they're just standing there and there's this band of prophets looking on. And then verse 8, Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Now, here what's happening, and this is incredibly significant, because of course, remember what happened with Moses. Moses held his rod out, and the Red Sea parted, and then later on, 
uh, Joshua had to do exactly the same thing when he led Israel over Jordan. And now Elijah is doing exactly the same thing. And, uh, you know, for him, like, the symbol of his authority was his mantle. Uh, for Moses, it was always, like, his, 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 his rod, his, you know, the, the staff that he carried with him. And, uh, and so what's happening here is that you've got an incredible example of the authority of God that Elijah was moving under. And uh, he simply struck the water and it, it parted, and so across the two of them walked. And uh, let's, let's read 9, 9 to 12 now. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he said, You've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now with those verses, can you spot the symbolism here? Elijah has been leading Elisha, and he has been moving by the Spirit. Elijah is now going to ascend into heaven, physically and bodily. And Elisha, whom he is leaving behind on the earth to carry on where he has started, is now going to receive the Spirit that he had. So Elijah is going to go up into heaven, and the Spirit with which he was empowered is going to come down on Elisha, his servant. Now then, that is the symbolism of what happened much later when Jesus ascended into heaven. Because of course Jesus did everything that he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told the disciples that when I go away, that when I ascend, because I'm ascending, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on you and you're going to be able to do what I have done. And what we've got here is a prophetic picture of the ascension and being baptised in the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and in fact, what Elisha is actually asking for is a double share of Elijah's spirit. Now, what that is meaning there isn't that Elijah worked, you know, powerful signs and wonders by his own spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And what Elisha is asking for is the power, the anointing that God gave you to work miracles. What he's asking for is a double share of what Elijah had. And interestingly enough, if you were to, uh, you know, read through the rest of the story of Elisha until the day he died, um, if you count up all the miracles that Elijah worked, and then count up all the miracles that Elisha worked up till the day he died. Elisha worked exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah, minus one. Minus one. So the day that Elijah, Elisha died, he had worked twice as many signs and wonders as Elijah, minus one. So we're one short. But years later, something happens. Because it was well known where, where Elisha, when he died, he was buried in a grave. And someone who was sick fell on his bones, and they were healed. 
So even though the completion of it came after he died, Elisha did actually work exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did. He got exactly what he asked for. And of course the interesting thing is, is that Jesus in John 14 verse 12 says this, he says, he who believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now what happened as a result of Jesus going to the Father? Salvation was accomplished and finished when Jesus died on the cross. So what was accomplished when Jesus ascended to the Father? Well, he actually ascended twice, didn't he? On the morning that he rose again from the dead, he ascended, and that's when he took paradise back up to heaven, all right? But it was when he ascended bodily, 40 days later, in front of everyone, when he did that, when he ascended, what was the result of that? Salvation was all done. Well, the result of that is that the Holy Spirit was poured out on those who had been saved, to empower them so that many others who weren't saved could be saved. So Jesus ascending was the means whereby the power of the Holy Spirit could be poured out on his church. But here's the point, this thing about greater works, this is to say that we can actually be greater than Jesus, what it's saying is simply this, Jesus was baptised with the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove, and he started to preach. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the point is that when the Holy Spirit filled Jesus, he was filling one human being. Albeit a perfect, sinless human being who was himself God, but nevertheless one human being. Now, because Jesus has ascended, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, the Holy Spirit is now dwelling millions of believers. And consequently, on earth, Jesus was limited to being in one place at one time. If he was in Galilee, he couldn't be in Capernaum. You know, if he was, um, you know, by the Lake of Galilee or something, he couldn't be in Neesden. You know, or sort of like if he was in Jerusalem, he couldn't be in Watford, is he? Now, because Jesus has poured his Holy Spirit out on the whole church, the church is worldwide. Jesus now has so many bodies to inhabit and therefore there's so much more that he can do because whereas he only had one body on earth now he's got lots of us and corporately we make up the body of Christ on earth and therefore Jesus can do so much more because he's got so many more people through whom to do it and so that is the picture here now there are two things I just want to draw attention to the condition of seeing Elijah taken was that so that Elisha would know that his desire and expectation was from the Lord. Now, what I'm saying is, he had said to Elijah, he said, look, I want a double share of your spirit. God has done such marvellous things through you, I want God to do even more through me. Not because Elisha was being arrogant or something, he, he knew Elijah was a total sinner, he knew he was. But he just wanted God to do even more through him than he did through Elijah. And so he says, right, I want a double share of your spirit. Now, the point is, Elijah then said to him, right, if you see me taken, it will be given. If you don't see me taken, it won't. So the point here is that Elisha needed to know that his request for that power wasn't mere presumption. you see what I mean? And so the point is that because he saw Elijah actually taken up into heaven, he could know that his request that God give him twice the power, he could know that his request had been said yes to 
by God. So he got the evidence of that. Elisha, through having been told, your request will be given you if you see me ascend, then when he did see Elijah ascend, God took him while Elisha was still there. He knew that God had okayed what he asked for. Much in the same way, when Peter, uh, you know, when they were at the storming sea and, and, and Jesus came out and he walked on the water, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. And only then, you know, did Peter do it. It was getting that, uh, you know, sort of proof that it was asking according to God's will. And there's nothing to suggest that, that as a result of this, Elisha felt anything. He simply, as it were, knew that God had said, right, you've seen Elijah taken, your request for a double share of his spirit is going to be granted. All right? So the point was, Elisha would know that he was authorised by God to do even greater things than Elijah had done. Now, so it is with us. We, as believers, are authorised by God to expect the same power in our lives as Jesus had. And one of the reasons we often don't see it is because we don't realise that we, we have been authorised to have it. You know, we still think, oh goodness, no, that can't be. You know, I mean, in John, it talks about us as Jesus was, so are we in this world. And this kind of blows our mind, doesn't it? But nevertheless, Jesus has authorised us to receive his power. And note as well, Elisha knew that he got the power because he felt something. Uh, he didn't even speak in tongues. They didn't have tongues in the Old Testament, or not, you know, the same way it is in the church. And uh, the reason that Elisha knew he had that power was because he saw Elijah ascending. He just believed it. And so he went and used it. And it's the same with us. It doesn't matter what we feel. If we've been baptised with the Spirit, we have that power. We've been authorised to use it. Go to Matthew. Let's just look through some of the teaching of Jesus here in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. <laughs> Jesus came and said to them, this is shortly before Jesus ascends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is saying to them, I have total authority on earth. Now go over to John. John chapter 20. And verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So Jesus has total authority on the earth, that is his. Here, he gives it to the disciples. My authority is now yours. I'm giving it to you. It's delegated authority. If you live in obedience to me, then you carry that authority in your own lives. Now go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God 
and to heal. Now go to chapter 10 and verse 19. And he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now there is Jesus telling his disciples that we share the authority that he has. Go back to, well, forward to John's Gospel in the first chapter. <coughs> John chapter 1 and verse 12. And speaking of Jesus, it says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Now, there are two words in the Greek that are translated power. Uh, one is dunamis, which is the word we get dynamite from, and the other is exousia. Here, it's exousia, and it means the legal right. So it's like power of attorney is a legal right to order someone else's affairs. Now, one of the things that happened in the ancient world around here at uh, that time was there was something called the toga virilis. Now, what happened was it was a custom amongst the Romans and it kind of spread, you know, and so most of the ancient world did this. And what would happen is that when a father, when his firstborn son had matured and had sort of come of age, assuming his father thought, yeah, this is a good son, I've trained him and he's responded well, and the father would want to set his son over all his affairs, all right? Now, what would happen is that the father, on a certain day, he would take his grown-up son uh, along to some public place where all the leaders of the community met, and he would read a declaration of delight in his son. He would publicly announce um, you know, that, that, that my son is, has now reached manhood, he is, as far as I'm concerned, completely able to represent me in all my affairs. And what he would then do is there was a long robe called the toga, all right, the toga virilis, and it meant, you know, sort of like the clothes you wore because you were grown up and strong, mature. And so it signified the giving of this garment, this toga Virilis signified that the father was absolutely satisfied that his son was now at the point where he could completely take on his father's affairs in the surrounding community. All right. Now go to Matthew chapter 3. Let's see Jesus getting his toga virilis from his father in heaven. <coughs> Matthew chapter 3 and find verse 16. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, can you see what that is about? That is God the Father doing this ceremony with Jesus that the people around would have well known what it was all about and saying, right, Jesus, now you are ready to start the ministry I've called you to. And you get the declaration of delight, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But what is the toga virilis? It's the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Now obviously Jesus was 
born again of the Spirit, because it was by the Holy Spirit he was conceived in Mary. But here he's receiving that power to actually begin the ministry that he had been sent by God for. Right, so there's Jesus. Now then, do we get one? Go to Luke 24. And let's see Jesus when he's telling the disciples that what happened to him was very shortly after he ascended going to happen to them. Luke 24 and in verse 49 and again this is sh just just prior to him actually ascending into heaven and uh, and in verse 49 he says and behold I send the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high and the Greek word there is clothed. It doesn't just say receive the Holy Spirit, but you're going to be clothed in the power from on high. And of course he was talking about when, a while later, they were actually baptised in the Holy Spirit. And of course the point is that when we're baptised in the Holy Spirit, we're receiving the same power and authority through which Jesus lived his life. The power of the Holy Spirit. And so the point is that we have the full potential, in the same way that Elisha received the same power, and more so, that Elijah had known, in exactly the same way for us, when we're baptised with the Spirit, we are receiving the power of Jesus himself. The same power by which he lived. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now then, a second thing to notice here, is that, um, that when Elijah says to Elijah, you know, kind of, I want a double portion of your spirit, uh, the reply he gets is that you've asked a hard thing. Elijah said, oh, that'll be hard. That'll be difficult. Oh, goodness, we've got a problem there. Now then, what is, is he saying, oh, I don't know if God can do that. You've asked a bit of a tough one there. No, of course it's not that. Elijah isn't saying it's going to be hard for God. Elisha, Elijah is saying to Elisha, what, you want a double portion of my spirit? My goodness, you've asked a hard thing. Do you realise how you're going to cop it if you get twice the anointing that I get? Can you see? That's why he says you've asked a hard thing. Because the point is, get the anointing of God, and my goodness, you're going to be in trouble. You are really going to be for it. Live and move in the anointing and the power of Jesus, and boy, you're going to get it. Uh, go back to Acts all over the place, but now I want to show you in the Acts of the Apostles Jesus talking to the disciples about um, being baptised with the Spirit and uh, Acts chapter 1 and uh, first of all verse 5 uh, no, let's, let's read from verse 4 and while staying with them Jesus charged them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard from me for John baptised with water, but before many days you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And uh, now go down into verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, here we're seeing that the baptism with the Holy Spirit, us receiving our toga virilis, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the life of Jesus, is so that we can be witnesses. 
Now, it's certainly true when, you know, Christians say, well, the baptism with the Spirit is power for witnessing. They're absolutely right. But the problem is that when we use that word witnessing in English, it doesn't in the slightest convey anything of what the Greek word that's used here conveys. When we talk about witnessing, we're usually meaning by that, oh, I had a chance to talk to someone about Jesus. Now, that's important, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. But in the Greek, this word witness is far more comprehensive than merely speaking, because the word here used for witness is the Greek word martyria. Now then, can you guess what word we get in English from martyria? Martyr. Martyr. And it's talking about here that the power that the Holy Spirit grants us is not merely so we can talk. It is so we can talk. Verbal declaration of the good news about Jesus is important. But the point is, the Holy Spirit wants to then work in us so that our words that we can speak with power can also be matched by a life that is being thoroughly and fully dealt with by him. And so therefore, to be baptised with the Holy Spirit is to become a witness, as in becoming a martyr. Now, what's the distinctive thing about a martyr? He dies for the cause he believes in. Now, we believe in Jesus, we follow Jesus. What did Jesus say? Unless you deny yourself and pick up your cross. We are to be living martyrs living dead men. Because as the Holy Spirit works more and more in us, he's going to bring us into death to self. And it's only as we come into death to self that the life of Jesus can be released in us. And then that's the only way that the words we speak, oh, become a Christian, Jesus can change your life. What's the good of saying that to someone unless they can see that our lives are being changed? Can you see the point? And the way that the Lord changes our life, I mean, I've, I've said this before, in one way, to become a Christian is to have a changed life. But there's another sense in which to become a Christian isn't so much for a changed life, it's for an ex-changed life. Jesus exchanges his life for ours. As we die to self, he lives through us. Go to Romans chapter 12. Now, most Christians don't tie this up with the baptism with the Spirit. They think the baptism with the Spirit is merely power to evangelize and power to receive the gifts of the Spirit. It is all that, but it's so much more. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a mega kickstart to the whole process of sanctification. God dealing and delivering us from the power of sin in our own lives through death to self. And Romans chapter 12, read the first two verses, listen to this. I appeal to you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Paul says here, be living sacrifices. What? When you mention sacrifice to a Jew, what does he think of? An animal that's been killed. And he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, the living dead. You're alive, no one has actually taken a knife to you and stuck it in you and drained your blood. But he's saying the point is, as disciples, we are to deny ourselves. We are to die to self, 
so that Jesus can live through us and therefore we've got to be living sacrifices and what's interesting is that only then he says don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that word transformed is metamorphoon it's the Greek word for a metamorphosis like the butterfly that comes out of the cocoon one creature goes into the cocoon a completely different creature comes out and it's only we are only going to see that changing influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to the extent that we are willing to become living sacrifices to truly say Lord do with me exactly as you will death to self really praying sincerely Lord lay the cross on me do this in me you know no matter what it takes no matter how much it hurts Lord do it that is what receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit is for. And sadly, because so many Christians merely think it's for the gifts of the Spirit and, you know, and for power to verbally, you know, sort of like speak about Jesus, because that's all they think it is. That's all, that's all their experiences of it. But in actual fact, it's so much more than that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. How can the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus in my life? By getting me out of the way and letting Jesus come through death to self that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and so therefore when Elijah Elisha says to Elijah a double portion of the Spirit okay he says oh hard thing there think, think carefully Elisha you're really gonna cop it if you want to do this because this is really gonna mean death to self and it is going to be painful and of course part of how God does this death to self is that when you're baptized with the Spirit when you're following the Lord oh boy are you in Satan's targets so Satan does everything he can to come against you and to try and persuade you not to follow the law fully and uh, you know sort of like all the difficulties that that brings on people rejecting you blah 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 is part of the process that God is using to humble us to show us where nothing to kill off our pride you see the way it works and so that was why Elijah said oh you've you know you've asked a hard thing he wanted to make sure all the time that Elisha knew exactly what he was letting himself in for and then what happens next is Elijah is actually taken up uh, into heaven uh, you know a chariot of fire and horses of fire <coughs> and um, it's on the basis of verses like this and various other bits and pieces sometimes people say there are animals in heaven well of course there are animals in heaven how could horses come from heaven you see angelic divine not divine but angelic you know animals there are horses in heaven. Indeed, at the second coming, Jesus will come riding on a horse. So yeah, there are horses in heaven that are, well, of a completely different order from horses down here. So yes, there are heavenly animals and, and, and now they come down in a chariot and uh, take Elijah straight up to heaven by a whirlwind. And uh, so Elisha sees it and he cries out, you know, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen and he saw him no more. So what happens here is that Elisha actually sees the angelic army of God transferring Elijah up to heaven. Now the point is, one of the things that Elisha realized that day is that behind the reality of everyday physical life, and that is real, you know, everyday physical tangible life is real, but behind that lies something else that although we don't normally see it and it isn't tangible is equally as real and it's the world of the angels 
the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Yeah, there are the demons, they're Satan's army, but here we're having a look at God's angelic army. Now, bearing in mind that Elisha saw this, that's a, if you go forward into 2 Kings chapter 6, so just forward a few chapters, I just want to read you an incident out of um, Elisha's later ministry. And uh, this, is, this is really quite fascinating. I like this. 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll start reading from verse 15. Um, now, what's happening here is that uh, Elisha has now become the prophet to Israel and, 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 and the people of Israel are in a bit of a better state now than they were years earlier. And uh, the king of Syria, still giving him a lot of trouble, keeps invading them. So, uh, you know, like Syria keeps attacking God's people. Now, the problem is that every time that uh, Syria launches an attack, God tells Elisha in advance that an attack's coming at a certain place from Syria. So then Elisha went to the king of Israel and said Syria is going to attack here tomorrow. So every time Syria attacked, they, you know, a sneak attacked and there's the entire Israeli army. And this happens again and again and again because God is telling Elisha as a prophet and Elisha is telling Israel, look, they're going to attack here. So every time the king of Syria tried to do a sneak attack, bang, there's the army and it didn't work. And uh, it got to the point where the king of Syria got all his, uh, you know, sort of generals and he said there's a spy in the camp. Someone is, there's a spy among you. Someone, one of you is, and they said, no, it's not us, it's Elisha. He's a prophet. And they said, he tells the king what you do in your bedchamber. There's no secrets here. Whatever you plan to do, O king, God tells Elisha, and Elisha goes and tells the Israeli king, and we haven't got a chance. So the king of Syria says, right, find out where he is and get him. So now the attack is off of Israel corporately, and now the entire Syrian army is after Elisha, because they want to kill him, alright? Say, you know, the enemy is really determined to destroy Elisha. So what's happening here is that Elisha, who by now has a servant as well, he's in a, a certain city. And um, let's, let's read uh, from verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was round about the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Let me give you the picture here. Elisha's servant gets up bright and early one morning, you know, in this city, Botan, in fact, and, uh, you know, it's got its walls round it, and he goes for a walk round the walls, and he looks out of the gate, and the entire city is surrounded by the Syrian army. And he just kind of knows instantly why they're there. They're there to kill his master, which wasn't a very good prospect for him, because often when masters were killed, the the servants were killed as well. So it wasn't a very nice prospect for him. So he goes and he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? In other words, this is a kind of, a, you know, sort of really a Hebrew idiomatic way from saying he is freaking out. <laughs> you know, he, he's terrified. And he runs in and he gets Elisha up and he's panicking all over the place. He said, now, this is Elisha's reply to him. He said, fear not, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you imagine the servant starts to look round. Where? Where? <laughs> you know, where? You know, have you got the Israeli army under your bed per chance, master? You know, I mean, there were, you know, I mean, the, the entire Syrian army were there. Now then, verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, round about Elisha. And what happens is, Elisha prays, and this servant, he goes back and he looks again. 
and there's the Syrian army surrounding them. But now he can see something else because behind the Syrian army surrounding them, surrounding the city of Dotan, are the army of angels. They're on their horses. They were there all the time. But of course he couldn't see them. He wasn't having faith. And of course the point is that Elisha knew, send in who you like, the Lord and his angels are with us. So those who are with us are far greater than those who are coming against us. And, um, you know, it's such, it's such a good picture here, because Elisha, he might not have seen them physically, again, like the young man. He saw them once when Elijah was taken to heaven, but he didn't need to see them again. He knew they were there. That's faith. If God be for us, who can be against us? And, of course, in, in Psalm 34, verse 7, it talks about the fact that the angels of the Lord camp round those who fear him. Well, that's the truth of it. Elisha was believing it, but the young man wasn't. And of course, part of the picture that you've got here, and it's, it's, it's a real picture of what God is doing in spiritual warfare. See, the point is, here, the Syrian army surrounds Elisha, because they want to kill him. What's the outcome of it? The army of God ends up surrounding the army of Syria. And that what you've got is, here, Elisha was merely the bait to spring the trap. Um, often liken it to Tom and Jerry. Um, you know, that you've got the fact that, that, that Tom is after Jerry. And, uh, you know, sort of, it, it looks like Tom always to get Jerry. But every time, without fail, when Tom has got Jerry in a position where Jerry cannot possibly escape, who turns up? Butch the dog. And it's Jerry, it's Tom who gets sorted out by Butch the dog. It's not Jerry who gets sorted out by Tom. Now, it's in exactly the same way. Satan is after us. And this is why sometimes spiritual warfare feels like God's playing cat and mouse with us. Satan is after us. And time and time again, it looks like we're in the position of Jerry up against the wall and there's Tom ready to eat us. And it looks like Satan's bearing down and all is lost and it looks ghastly, all right? But what happens next? Along comes Butch the dog. Along comes Father. And he's merely used us as bait to catch Satan, so that Elisha is surrounded by the enemy army. But all God was doing was getting the enemy army where he wanted them, and he then surrounded the enemy army with his army. And what happened in this particular story is that God struck the Egyptian, the Syrian army blind. You know, they were all wandering around saying, where are we, how do we get home? You know, so in actual fact, the servant realised that he and Elisha were in no danger whatsoever because God was sovereign over the whole thing. So it might look like Satan's surrounding you, it might look like he's got you, it might look like the death blow is going to come any minute. It's not true. When it feels like that, the truth is the death blow is coming Satan's way, not our way. You know, we're the sprat to catch the mackerel. And that's the way it works. And I don't know about you, that makes me feel safe. It doesn't matter how bad things get, Satan is not in control. God is in control. And even when it has looked to me, in the past, that, uh, you know, oh crikey, it looks like Satan's won the victory. I have found every time that last minute God turns the tables, completely turns the table, and the victory is always the Lord's, and never Satan's. Now, look what happens next. Um, Elijah, uh, let's see, um, so Elisha took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Now why did he do that? Well he had Elijah's clothes, he had the mantle. 
So he tore up his own clothes, he didn't need them. And of course, the point is that we have the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit, we don't need our own power, so God tears it up. That's why sometimes as a Christian we feel all torn up. God's tearing up our power. Can you see that? Bringing us to the end of our power, the end of our capabilities and everything. Because we can only depend on the Lord to the extent we no longer depend on ourselves. And Elisha now had Elijah's mantle, cloak. He didn't need his own. So he tore up his own clothes and he wore his master's. And, uh, you know, that's exactly the same. We have Jesus' life. Our lives need to be torn up. Not our strength anymore, but Jesus's. And then verse 14, look at this. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now then, do you remember what happened? When they were on their way, coming the other way, for Elijah to be, you know, sort of taken up to heaven, they came to the Jordan. The Jordan was in the way. Elijah parted it. It wasn't in the way anymore, and across they went. Elisha has received Elijah's power. Now he has to go back out into the world there to start the ministry, to carry on where Elijah had left off. What's the first thing that happens? He meets the obstacle that had prevented them getting over in the first place, and now he can't get back. So, what does he do? What is the position he's in? He says, well, Elijah did it, and I've got the power of Elijah now, so why shouldn't I? And so he took the man, you know, he struck the water and he said, where is the God of Elijah? He took God at his word and the water parted. And the water parted. Now can you see, he expected God to do for him what God had done for Elijah. And the point is the position that we are in is that the Lord wants us to expect him to do for us what he did for Jesus because we have the Holy Spirit. The mantle of Jesus, if you like, has fallen on us. We have the same power that Jesus had, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is living in us. He is God Almighty. There's nothing he can't do. And he wants us to expect these great things in the same way that Elisha expected God to part the waters for him, in the same way that he had previously parted the water for Elijah. And really, part of what we need to do, and, and we've got to look to the Lord to lead us in this. I don't think there's any good of saying, all oh, right, okay, we'll start tonight, you know, and just sort of, you know, but we've really got to look to the Lord to show us how it is we strike the water and say, where is the God of Elijah? That is what we need to be looking to God to lead us into. So that the real presence of his power, the life-changing power, uh, victory over sin, miracles of healing, the casting out of demons, all these things that Jesus has promised us really do become part of our lives. And Elisha, his act of faith was striking the Jordan with the mantle of Elijah. He expected God to do for him what he'd done for Elijah, and so he acted on it. And we've got to be praying that the Lord will show us how we can be acting in his spirit and our version of striking Jordan and crying out, where is the God of Elijah? That, that kind of, that faith that, that speaks out, truly expecting God's hand to be moved by it, 
because it is God's will that his hand is moved by it. And that's what we've been needing as a church to be looking at the Lord to accomplish amongst us. So where is the God of Elijah? That is faith. That is the true faith of the Son of God, the faith of Jesus himself imparted to his people, which really does do the works that Jesus himself did, and indeed even greater ones. Right, okay, well there we have the life and times of Elijah. So we'll finish there.